0: To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Jean Ross.
1: Hello friends, this is Pastor Jean Ross, Pastor Doug is out, but how about an amazing fact? It is well known that bats fly by sonar. They emit high-frequency sounds which the human ear cannot hear. The returning echo of these sounds places sound print pictures in their minds. Using this technique, a bat can catch a tiny, fast-flying insect. The higher the pitch, the smaller the surface its echo can reveal. Some sounds are so high that they can enable the little bat to detect the presence of a wire no thicker than a human hair stretched across its pathway. Then there is the intensity of the sound. The louder it is, the more distant the object that can be detected. So these calls are generally very loud. But wait, if it is necessary for the bat to make such a loud sound in order to have it echo back from some far distant object, how can the bat possibly hear the echo with its ears in the midst of all of the racket that it is making with its mouth? This is a good question, for the eardrum of the bat is extremely sensitive. It is so sensitive, in fact, that just a few of its own screams would quickly deafen it. But God has taken care of the problem. There is a special muscle in the middle ear of the bat that is attached to one of three tiny bones which transmit the vibrations of the eardrum to the organ in the skull that convert them into nerve signals sent to the brain. Just as each scream is on the verge of being emitted, this muscle instantly pulls back that tiny bone so that it does not transmit sound from the outer ear to the inner ear. The eardrum is momentarily disconnected. Then after the scream is ended, the muscle relaxes and the bone moves back into place. Thus the only sound that the bat hears is its own echo. This back-and-forth motion of this bone can occur more than a hundred times a second, and it always occurs in perfect alignment with the sending of the super-short screams. Friends, if God cares enough about the common back to provide it with this remarkable ability to hear its own echo, how much more does He care for you? Stay tuned for more as Amazing Facts brings you this edition of Bible Answers Live. You're listening to Bible
0: Answers Live. Accurate and practical answers to your Bible questions.
1: Well, welcome back, friends. This is Bible Answers Live. And as you mentioned at the start of the program, Pastor Doug is out. But this is Interactive International Bible Study. And if you have a Bible-related question, we would love to hear from you this evening. The phone line here to the studio is 800-463-7297. That's 800-God-Says. You can also join us on Facebook on the Amazing Facts Facebook page, and you'll see the phone phone number is there on screen if you have a Bible-related question. Now, we opened the program talking about how God made the bat, uh, giving it an ability to hear its echo, even though its screams are so loud and its ears are so sensitive. And if God did all of this for the bat. And of course, this is just one creature. If you study all of the different animals God has made and you see the marvels of creation, if God cares about the animal so much, how much more does he care for you and I? Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, these are the words of Jesus. And are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. You know, if God cares about the creation of the animals and providing for their needs, He cares about you. Uh, we, of course, are living at a very interesting time of Earth's history. We're in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. We're facing some real challenges economically. There seems to be social unrest. There are natural disasters happening. And there is a lot of fear in the world. People sense something is happening, something out of the ordinary. But as Christians, we should have uh, an abiding peace and a trust, knowing that God cares for us and He loves us. We have a book we'd like to send you. Perhaps you're a little stressed by what's happening in the world around you. Maybe there are some real concerns you have for your family, maybe for your career. We have a book we'd like to send you. It's called From Stress to Joy. And it's looking at some of the wonderful promises that we find in the Bible that God gives us, that he is with us, he'll provide for our needs. The book is called From Stress to Joy, and we'll be happy to send this to anyone in North America. We'll put it in the mail, and you'll get it in the next few days. The number to call is 800-835-6747. That is our resource phone line. And you can tell them you'd like the book From Stress to Joy, and we'll be happy to send it to you. Again, it's 800-835-6747. And ask for the book From Stress to Joy. If you're outside of North America, you can read the book by simply going to the Amazing Facts website, just amazingfacts.org or .com, and uh, look in the free library. We have a number of resources there, and you'll be able to find the book From Stress to Joy, and you'll be able to read, and I think you'll be richly encouraged by the promises found in the Word of God that's brought to view in this book. Thank you for calling, and friends, we're going to go straight to the phone lines. We've got George listening in New Jersey. George, welcome to the program. Hi, how you doing tonight, all right? Doing well. Thank you for calling.
2: Yes, uh, first I want to thank you for the little booklet I got from last week's show, Three Steps to Heaven. Oh, I actually got it within five days, so it was pretty cool. right. I got it right away, and I'm already enjoying it.
1: Glad to hear that. Uh,
2: My question tonight is about the expression in Genesis, it's mostly in Genesis, gathered to his people, which is used sometimes when people passed away. And, uh, you know, at first, to me, it seems like it's referring to burial, but there's a few times that it would imply life after death. At least that's what some scholars say. For instance, when uh, Jacob dies near the end of Genesis, it says that uh, Jacob was gathered to his people but then he wasn't really buried until, I guess, many days later. And then there's one more verse before you answer. When Abraham died, it said he was gathered to his people, but he was only buried with Sarah. So how would you explain that in light of the belief that uh, a person sleeps when they die? Because in some cases, it just doesn't, at least to me,
1: Uh, refer to their burial? You see what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. First thing to note is that phrase used in the Bible is not always used with reference to um, a good person dying. Now, in the patriarchs, the examples that you gave, of course, it's referring to uh, believers and, um, you know, we have confidence that they're going to be in heaven. But if you get further on in the Old Testament, it's referring to the different kings and sometimes it'll use the phrase "they were gathered to their people. Many of those kings were not, righteous and um, you know we don't anticipate them being in the kingdom because it says they did evil in the sight of the Lord so the phrase "gathered to his people simply means he dies now again I think you referenced this a little bit and it's not always exactly the case but for most times when a person died they were buried uh, back in Bible times usually in a cave and you have the example of Abraham and Sarah it was an interesting procedure Uh, they would wrap the body and they would place it in the cave, put a stone on the door, and the body would decay, and after some time, might be a year or two years, whatever it might be, um, they would go back into the cave. The only thing then left would be the bones. They would take the bones and place them in a smaller box and set it to the side, and they would reuse the tomb. So you could have an entire family buried in the same tomb or in the same cave and uh, it was used over and over again so the phrase he was gathered to his people often has a reference to the fact that burial back in bible times you were literally your bones were literally gathered with your family or with your ancestors and that's kind of where the phrase comes from but it simply means the person died it's not a reference to um, the state of the dead whether a good person goes to heaven or a bad person goes to hell or is there some sort of purgatory. That's not what's being referred to in that verse. It's just simply meaning they died and they were buried. Does that help, George? Okay, thank you. Uh, Yes, it does, very much so. All right. Thanks for your call. We appreciate it. Next caller that we have is uh, Irene. Um, You know, just before I take that call, Irene, hold on for a second. We do have a study guide that talks about the subject of What does the Bible say about death? And it's called, Are the Dead Really Dead? And it's one of our amazing facts study guides. It's part of a great series of different Bible topics. And we will send this to anyone who asks for it. It's an important subject. And you'll see why as you get into it. If you read the study guide, um, understanding this truth is important because the devil is going to try and deceive people in the last days. So knowing what the Bible says about what happens to a person when he dies is very important because the devil will deceive people on this very issue we'll be happy to send anyone this study guide it's called are the dead really dead it's actually an encouraging study the number is 800-835-6747 and again you can ask if the study guide is called are the dead really dead we'll get it in the mail and send it to you and of course if you're outside of north america go to the amazing facts website you can sign up for the free uh online bible course which uh, that lesson is one of Irene is listening from Texas. Irene, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you.
4: Thank you for taking my call.
1: You're welcome. And your question tonight.
4: Uh, my question is um, from Malachi three ten, which says, "Bring the full tithe into the storehouse." So my question is, um, is it wrong to take the tithe and offering and give it to the offering instead of uh, giving tithe separately and offering separately? So I just take the tithe offering and give it to the offering.
1: Okay, good question. Do we give our tithes and offering all at one time? Can we include it in one offering? Usually what a lot of churches do is um, they will have what they call a tithe envelope, and most churches have this. Uh, You can take a tithe envelope and you can kind of divide up your funds in different categories. One of the categories is tithe, and that's 10% of your increase. And then there's usually other areas that you can contribute to. It might be church budget. It might be for some outreach in the community and you can assign a dollar amount for those different funds, but you can write it all in one check, and you can place it in the offering plate, or if you're going to give online, uh, most churches have a similar format where you can divide up your tithes and your offerings online so that it's designated. The reason you want to designate or separate the tithe from the offerings is for practical purposes. Uh, The tithe is used for the most part, and um, rightfully so, to support the work of full-time preachers. So those like your pastors, evangelists, Bible workers, those who are in in full-time ministry in preaching, teaching the Word, they're the ones that are sustained from the tithe. And so it just makes it easier for the accountants to have a separation between tithes and offerings. Does that help, Irene? Ah,
3: you see that.
1: thank you. All right, you're welcome. You know, we do have a study guide talking about the subject of tithes and offerings. What does the Bible teach? Is it still applicable in New Testament times? And we'll be happy to send this to anyone who calls and asks. The study guide is called "In God we Trust." And we'll send that to you. The number is eight hundred eight three five six seven four seven. And again, just ask for the study guide in God we Trust," and we'll get it in the mail. Jerry's listening from Texas. Jerry, welcome to the program.
3: Ah, Pastor Ross, thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. Just over the weekend, I can't give you the exact scripture for it, but the Bible says we'll know each other as they were. When Adam wakes up from his long nap, will he recognize the Creator that walked with him in the garden with the exception of the precious holes in his hands and the scars in his forehead?
1: I Absolutely. You know, if there's anyone that we're going to be able to recognize in the resurrection, it's going to be Jesus. Um, just the glory and the light uh, that will shine forth from him the fact that the angels are standing in worshipping him uh, that's going to make it very clear that this is our Savior this is Jesus and see, yes will Adam un- be able to understand and know Jesus uh, absolutely now of course when Christ appeared to Adam in the Garden of Eden he probably didn't appear in the form that he took when he became a man during the incarnation Uh, the aura, the fact that he is worshipped, just the divinity that shines forth from him, that'll, without a doubt, make it very clear to Adam uh, who this person is, that it is indeed Jesus. (laughs) Thank you so much, Pastor Ross. All right, you're welcome. Thank you for your call, Jerry. We appreciate that.
0: You're listening to Bible Answers Live. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. Call us at
1: 1-800-GOD-SAZ. Uh we have got Chris listening in Florida. Chris, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you very much. I have a question from Prophecy of Daniel. Okay. From chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14. When it talks about, uh, it uses actually the word, the Son of Man coming down. Okay. The vision that, that, that is, uh, Daniel said.
4: Yes.
1: So
3: my question is, uh, does it refer to Jesus, second
1: coming? Yeah, let me, let me read the verse for those who are, um, you know, might be driving. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 is the verse you're referring to. And it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one likened to the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, one would think, hey, Son of Man, this is an indication of Jesus, and there are clouds, it would seem like the second coming of Christ. But wait a minute, this is not the second coming. Let me finish the verse. I was watching the night visions, and behold, one likened to the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And then it says, He came to the Ancient of Days, and they, that would be the angels, brought Him near before Him. Then to Him was given dominion, glory, a kingdom, that all people and nations and languages should serve Him, His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. Now if you look at just a few verses previous to that, we read verse 13 and verse 14. But if you look a little earlier in verse 9, Daniel in vision says, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white like snow, the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne a fiery flame, wheels of burning fire. Verse 10 says, A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. And then you read in verse 13, I saw one like unto the Son of Man. So what's being described here in Daniel chapter 7 is very interesting. It's describing a special judgment that occurs in heaven just before the second coming of Christ sometimes referred to as the pre-advent judgment, the advent being the second coming of Christ, pre being just before. And it uh, uses the imagery of the temple or the sanctuary, of the holy and the most holy place. And this is describing a special work of judgment that occurs just before Jesus comes. So when one likened to the Son of Man is brought with the clouds of heaven, he came before the Ancient of Days. This is really describing Jesus entering into the most holy place There, in the presence of his father for the special work of judgment that happens just before he comes he receives the kingdoms of this world and he comes as king of kings and lord of lords so this is a unique um, prophecy we also see other references for example in Revelation chapter 11 talking about the sounding of the seventh trumpet it talks about this this judgment pre-advent judgment that we read about here in the Bible Um, does that help Chris?
4: yes yes but it's a little complicated yes
1: it is yep Uh, the key there is it refers to him coming to the ancient of days we know the ancient of days is god the father one like the son of man there would be christ so this is talking about a special event that takes place a judgment that happens in heaven you know we do have a study guide that actually deals with this very passage of scripture and it's just a great study one of my favorite it's called the final judgment and um It talks about this along with some other passages, also Revelation chapter 11 and so on. And you'll really enjoy it, Chris. Just call and ask and we'll be happy to get in the mail. Anybody wanting to learn more about what the Bible says about this judgment. It's important for us to understand this because it ties in with uh, Revelation 14. The Three Angels Messages, which is God's last warning message to the world. So call and ask for it. The number is 800-835-6747. And again, ask for the study guide. One of amazing facts is study guide, The Final Judgment. And we'll be happy to send that to anyone who calls and asks. We've got Anthony listening from New York. Anthony, welcome to the program. Good evening, Pastor Ross. Um, Hi. Um, I have a question about
5: the concept of fearing God. Now I know um, Matthew ten twenty eight. It says, for example, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But fear him, which is able to destroy both uh, soul and body and hell. And that's referring to God. And then, but in First John chapter four verse eighteen, it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out all fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not. Uh, is not made perfect in love Mm -hmm. and I was having a conversation uh, with someone about you know fearing God and I was of the opinion that yes initially when you learn of God you fear him but when you have a relationship with him and a deeper relationship you start you know your relationship is based off of love rather than fear of judgment or fear of punishment and um, uh, the other person had the idea that well because God is so awesome you need to fear him you don't want to trifle with him and you know so forth so i just want to know is there a balance between the two or is, is how should we understand the whole concept of fearing god
1: yeah that's a great question of course revelation 14:7 says fear god and give him glory um the word fear carries with it different applications the one would be if you're an unbeliever and you are unrepentant there is a certain amount of fear that you should have because there is a judgment. So there is going to be a time, a day of accountability. So on the one hand, the wicked ought to fear God because the judgment is coming. On the other hand, the righteous who have trusted in God, who are putting their faith in God, they don't fear in the sense of what the wicked would experience, but rather for them there is a holy reverence and awe the more they get to know God, the more they love God, but the more, uh, the greater God becomes. In in other words, when the prophet in the Old Testament stood in the presence of God and he saw God high and lifted up and uh, the Bible says his glory filled the temple, uh, the prophet said, woe is me for I am undone. And many times in Bible prophecy when you read about a prophet who catches a glimpse of the glory of God, he feels his uh, unworthiness. And yet there is a, a love and a drawing closer to God. So depending upon where you're at, uh, you can either fear God uh, because you're unrighteous and you're being disobedient to him, or you can draw close to him in, in awe and reverence, motivated by love. So um, when the Bible says fear God, if, if you're rebelling against God, yes, you ought to fear. But if you love God, you want to reverence God. You want to stand in awe of his glory. Does that make sense, Anthony? That makes perfect sense, and that helps a lot. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you for your call. We've got uh, E. Frank listening from New York. E. Frank, welcome to the program.
3: Yes. Uh, good evening, uh, Pastor Ross. Yes. Yes. I was just wondering uh, I've read in the book of Amos that there was a guide that needed uh, illumination to understand uh, what prophecy was in the Old Testament. And I was just wondering, do constellations, as the stellar constellations in the universe or in the sky, actually allow us to understand the Bible better? Do we actually need constellations to guide us astronomically through Scripture?
1: Okay, do we need the stars to have a clear understanding of who God is? Well, I think the clearest manifestation of what God is like is found in the scriptures and in the person of Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So, um, you know, if we want to really know what God is like, well, look at Jesus. Look at his teachings. Look at his life. Look at what he did. But when we see the stars and we realize how big the universe is, we see how glorious Uh, God is in being able to create all these things the Bible says the heavens reveal the glory of God Um, the clearest manifestation though of who God is is found in the Bible and in uh, the person of Jesus but there is also a prophetic application to this because we find that one of the signs that was given that the Messiah had come was a star it talks about a star and it was a unique star and of course you know the story about when Jesus was born in Bethlehem the wise men followed the star so in that sense it was a specific um, prophecy referring to a a sign that the wise men understood to be the coming of the Messiah so in that sense yes uh, the stars did reveal something special about God and probably that star that the wise men followed was a, a gathering of angels and their glory was shining forth, but uh, it did reveal something important to them. Does that help you, Frank?
5: Yes, uh, absolutely.
1: All right. Thank you again for your call. Uh, we've got, uh, let's see, Chris calling from Florida. Chris, welcome to the program.
2: Hi, thanks, Pastor Ross. Uh, yeah, quick question. My question is really simple. Is it a sin to sell on the Sabbath? I believe it is. But um, my question is really about like what about online, like let's say you have an Amazon store and Amazon doesn't allow you to close it, how does that work?
1: Okay, well that's a good question, you know that's one of the things that a lot of businesses um, have to deal with because especially through the internet we live in an international world where people can order different products for example online, Amazon, whatever it might be, you might be in different time zones. It might be the Sabbath where you are on the East Coast, but it might not be the Sabbath where I am on the West Coast. So um, somebody might be in Australia or New Zealand, and they're a whole day ahead of where we are here in North America. So, you know, it's it's difficult to kind of turn on and turn off um, because you wouldn't know what the Sabbath hours are for everyone. So what a lot of companies do is within their time zone that they are in, you know, they will hopefully, they hope that people will uh, respect the Sabbath hours and and not purchase things during their Sabbath hours. But it's not quite practical or possible for them to try and turn off the ability for somebody to purchase something in every time zone around the world. So it becomes more of a personal decision that people have to make whether or not they're going to buy something. Does that make sense, Chris? Yeah, yeah,
2: that makes sense. Um, And so, like, here's another question. So, like, uh, so you're saying that basically it's, you know, you should just turn it off on your Sabbath and then everybody else can figure it out for them themselves?
1: Well, at the end of the day, uh, people have to make their own decision. You know, when it's the Sabbath, uh, they need to refrain from from buying. Uh, It's a little hard for us through the internet to try and uh, control that. Now, if I have a company and the Sabbath hours come, I might not fulfill or I wouldn't fulfill those orders on the Sabbath. So the person wouldn't get their orders during the Sabbath hours. I wouldn't fulfill those orders. But for them to place the order, it's difficult for us to try and uh, decide what exactly their Sabbath time is because we're in different time zones. So do the best you can.
2: Right. Yeah, I guess we're a little weird with Amazon because uh, they, they basically they have their own fulfillment where if people work 24/7. You can't tell them not to work. You know, so. I don't know, I just feel kind of weird about it, but hey, thanks so much. I guess it's a difficult question to begin with.
1: Yeah, it is. Living with technology and these different uh, abilities to buy things around the world, but uh, hopefully individuals will make the decision where they won't buy on Sabbath, and it's probably the best that we could do. I see there's others waiting online. We've got Henry and Cindy and Irwin, and uh, don't go anywhere. We're going to get your calls, but it's probably not fair for me right now to take another call because we're coming up on our half-an-hour break, and um, it'll be a chance for the different stations to identify themselves and... um We do want to tell you, though, that uh, if you've enjoyed this program, it's not over. We have another half an hour to go. But if you'd like to learn more about Amazing Facts, maybe this is the first time you're listening to the program, visit our website. It's just amazingfacts.org or .com. And it is filled with great Bible study resources. There is videos that you can watch. There is also different uh, materials that you can read. And I'll help you in your walk with Christ. Friends, as mentioned, uh, the program's not over. We're just taking a short break, and we'll be right back with more Bible questions.
0: Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly.
6: A beast, a dragon, and a woman. They sound like the characters in a fairy tale, but nothing could be further from the truth. These three symbolic end-time players are actually found in the book of Revelation, whose predictions about the last days are not exactly a bedtime story. But there is a book called The Beast, the Dragon, and the Woman, and it's a daring and concise overview of the Bible's most compelling and perplexing end-time players. And it tells about the struggle between truth and error. You'll even find out the part that America plays in these last days. If you want to be ready for the earth-shaking events yet to come, then make sure and get your copy of The Beast, the Dragon, and the Woman today. To order your copy of The Beast, the Dragon, and the Woman, call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. Don't be caught unprepared for the final events of Bible prophecy. An international pandemic killing thousands, riots ripping communities apart, a global economic implosion. Many are wondering, is this the end of the world? Few question the military, economic, and technological might of the United States. So if we really are facing the last days, if these worldwide catastrophes are really harbingers of the end, shouldn't we expect the United States to play a key role in the final events of Bible prophecy? The book of Revelation provides unmistakable clues. And to help you understand them, Amazing Facts is releasing America in Bible Prophecy. It's gonna take you step-by-step in identifying the global forces at work in these last days. You might be surprised what the Bible really says. You owe it to yourself to find out. So get yourself a copy of America in Bible Prophecy.
0: To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers
1: Live. Hello friends, welcome back. This is Bible Answers Live. Pastor Doug is out this evening and we are happy to take your Bible question. My name is John Ross. And uh, we're going to go back to the phone lines. We've got Henry listening in New York. Henry, welcome to the program. Uh, yes, good evening, Pastor Ross. Hi there. My question is,
3: I, uh, is written anywhere in the Bible, if you keep secrets from a member of your family, it is a sin. I kept the secrets, for. I have two secrets, one for 60 years and one for 68 years. I haven't said anything to the members of my family. I want to,
1: but I'm afraid to. I was going to leave it in God's hands. All right, let me see if I can kind of share with you a verse or two on that. Um, I guess the answer would be it depends. It depends on several things. First of all, if it is a sin that uh, somebody has committed against a member of the family, uh, maybe they were not a believer at the time. Uh, Maybe it is 10, 15, 20, 30 years in the past, and you've confessed your sin. You have turned away from that sin and you have committed your life fully to Christ and the Holy Spirit is working in you. You know, uh, the Bible does tell us in Micah chapter 7 verse 19 that God cast our sins in the depths of the sea. So when we confess our sins and we honestly believe the promise of God that he has forgiven us and we turn away from the sin, we shouldn't have that come and haunt us. Uh, it's in the past. It's gone Um and we can have peace but if it is something that occurred uh in the past and and maybe it's a hindrance in your relationship with a family member maybe a spouse and the holy spirit is convicting you that um, in order to clear the air in order to help your relationship you don't want to keep secrets especially from your spouse uh, you might want to prayerfully uh, sit down and, and share with your spouse or a family member and say, so, you know, there is something I want to share with you. And you can say, you know, I've asked for forgiveness. I believe God has forgiven me, but I just feel the burden on my heart to to share this with you because I don't want any secrets between us. But, you know, that's something that I think you need to pray about and allow the Lord to lead because every situation's a little different. God knows um, the family member. You know the family member, how they're going to respond. You don't want to make things worse. So um, I would follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit there. I, there is not a, a scripture that says you have to uh, bring up something that's in the past that you've confessed with the Lord and you've been forgiven or even in your past life before you were a believer. But at the same time, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you that you need to clear the air, well then prayerfully consider how the Lord would have you do that. Thank you for asking that question, Henry. It's one that I think a lot of people wrestle with. Uh, Cindy, welcome to the program. Cindy from Oregon.
3: Hi. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. So, my question is: How do I get over this overwhelming fear I have of witnessing? There be so many times that I think I should say something, and I don't because either I'm afraid of being ridiculed, or I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing, and Um, turn people farther away from God then rather than bringing them closer or I'll get into a a topic or discussion that I don't know enough about and I I, so I do nothing I say nothing
1: okay how do you get over the fear of witnessing well um, I'll share with you something that I like to do that I think has helped Um, even if a person is not necessarily religious that you're visiting with but They are your friend. You get to know them. They trust you. And they're willing to share with you a genuine concern that they have. Maybe a problem. Maybe a financial situation. Whatever it might be. You get to know them and they share a concern. Maybe a family member that's sick. One of the things that you can say to pretty much anyone when they share a genuine concern, you can say, I understand the way you feel. I would probably feel the same if I was in your situation. But I have found that God answers prayer. I'm going to pray about that. Now, it doesn't really matter how they respond. Uh, You can tell them that you're going to pray for them in that situation. Sometimes uh, the conversation might not go any further on religious things because, you know, they might not be a believer and they kind of roll their eyes and say, yeah, yeah, whatever. But I found that if if I say that to someone, and then, of course, I go home and I pray for them specifically, and I pray that God will somehow reveal himself to the person through the situation and then I'll allow a week or two weeks to go by. And, and in the conversation, I'll bring it up. I'll say, you know, that situation that you shared with me about your mother that was sick or your aunt, whatever it might be, their financial need, you know, I've been praying about that situation. Has God done anything yet? And you'll be surprised at the response that people will give you. Sometimes they'll say, huh, you've been praying about it, huh? Or maybe God has resolved the situation. And that kind of opens them up to want to hear more about spiritual things. So that's that's one of the approaches that, that I've used very effectively in trying to open up a religious conversation.
3: Okay, so then does that mean that witnessing doesn't necessarily mean active preaching?
1: No, I mean, you, you've got to share when people are wanting to receive it or open to receive it. Uh, you can't force someone who might not have an interest in religious things But if they respond positively and they say, uh, wow, you've been praying about that. Does God always answer prayer? And then you can actually start talking to them about spiritual things. And maybe that would lead to a Bible study where you can sit down with them and open the word. So um, you can always share your own personal testimony. You can share with them uh, Bible verses of encouragement. But the first step is get to know them, win their confidence. This is what Jesus did. He won their confidence and then he was able to share with them, follow me. So we make friends, we win their confidence, we meet their needs, and then we're able to share with them the word as the Holy Spirit opens up the opportunity. Okay. All right.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. I it works. Be, it's uh, actually,
1: yeah, give it a try. I think you'll be, you'll be surprised. It's kind of neat. You know, you just pray for people and see what the Lord does and then follow up. Uh, sometimes we neglect to follow up and, uh, you know, We don't see the Lord work because we don't follow up. So follow up and essay. I've been praying for you. What has God done in that situation? And I think you'll be encouraged. Uh, We've got Erwin listening from uh, Las Vegas. Erwin, welcome to the program.
4: Good evening, Pastor Ross. How are you?
1: I'm well, thank you. And your question tonight?
4: Um, How can I make it official with the Lord when I fast? Is there a Christian ritual to follow and get credited officially?
1: Okay, well, remember that fasting for the Christian doesn't earn merit with God. There is nothing we can do to earn merit with God. Uh, Salvation is a gift. It's God's goodness. It's His grace that saves us. But there are times, and it's very appropriate for us, to fast and pray if we have a particular burden on our heart. If there is a request, or if we're praying for someone else, or if we're praying for a situation that we might be going through in our lives, it's appropriate to set aside a day and say, Lord, I'm gonna I'm gonna really focus today on seeking your presence. Maybe we're wanting to just grow closer to the Lord and we might say, Lord, I'm gonna fast on this day, or I might even fast this afternoon. Um, I'm gonna spend some time in prayer and I want you to reveal to me those things in my life that might be out of harmony with your will. And that's very appropriate to do so. There is nothing that you have to do in order to say, Hey Lord, I'm gonna fast But really it's a matter of prayer and making that decision and saying lord i'm going to set aside food for a period of time whether it's a day or afternoon or maybe two three days whatever it might be and saying lord i'm really going to set this time aside to seek your presence i want to seek guidance from you i want to know what your will is for my life Uh, and that's very appropriate to do so erwin there's nothing you have to officially kind of do but just pray about it and say lord i'm going to set aside some time for prayer. And um you'll be encouraged by what happens. Does that make sense?
4: Yes. Uh, thank you it's, uh good to me
1: now. All right. Thanks for calling erwin Uh we do have a book talking about prayer and uh, we'll send this to anyone who asks. It's written by Pastor Doug. It's called Teach Us to Pray. And it deals with uh some of these themes of prayer, also fasting and all some of those things connected with seeking revival. We'll be happy to send this to anyone who asks. Again, the book is called Teach Us to Pray, and the number to call is 800-835-6747. And just ask for the book called Teach Us to Pray, and we'll get it in the mail, and you'll be encouraged by reading that. Uh, we got Stephen listening from Georgia. Stephen, welcome to the program. Stephen, are you there? Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Yes. I apologize. I had it um, muted. Oh, no problem. Uh,
3: thanks for taking my call. First of all, and my question actually comes from Genesis where God is talking to Adam, and he's telling him about the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he says that thou shalt not eat of it. And then later on in the passage, it talks about where Christ uh, created Eve, caused Adam to go into his sleep, and then we skip down to chapter 3, starting at verse 2, going to verse 3. And the woman um, said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit um, of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, here's my point in question, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch, lest ye die. Now, I, I grew up with the understanding that the first sin was where, you know, Eve in her mind conceived on actually eating the fruit. But she's saying that God said that um, you could not touch it. Now, there's no reference that God said that. So my question is, is the first sin technically a
1: lie? Good question. Now, um, it appears that when God said, uh, you know, this tree in the middle of the garden, you're not to eat of the fruit. The Bible says that he, he said that to Adam. Correct. Now, there were other things that God said to Adam that, you know, we don't have recorded it's very possible that Adam then communicated to Eve what God had said. And um, God might have said, don't eat it. Matter of fact, Adam might have said, don't even touch it, don't even go near it. God could have very well have said, "Don't, don't even touch the tree. We might not have that recorded. Now, was that the first lie? I don't believe it was, because this occurred before sin had entered into the world. She was just being tempted at that time, and Temptation is not a sin. So, um, no, it it wasn't the first lie. God must have made it very clear to Adam and Eve that not only were they not to eat of the fruit, they weren't even to touch the fruit. They weren't even to open up that door for temptation. Uh, We just don't have it recorded. And, of course, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, lead us not into temptation, meaning lead us away from temptation. So, no, I don't think this was a lie that Eve said. She was sincere in what she told the serpent. Uh, God doesn't even want us to touch the fruit.
3: Okay. Thank you very much for your time.
1: All right. No problem. Good question. Thank you, Stephen. We've got Oliver listening in St. Louis, Missouri. Hi, Oliver.
3: Hi. Good evening and blessings to you, Pastor Ross. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. My call, uh, my question comes from a question that had been recently posed to me. Uh, someone recently asked me if I thought that those who had died in Sodom and Gomorrah and I expanded the question to those who died uh, by judgment in the flood, whether or not they would be resurrected to face judgment again when the lost are raised to face judgment.
1: Okay. Um, is there going to be a final judgment that everyone, including those before the flood, are going to uh, be raised? Yes. Uh, we call that the great white throne judgment. You can read about in Revelation chapter 20. In 21, it occurs at the end of the 1,000-year period, known as the Millennium. Uh, The New Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven, and uh, there is a resurrection that takes place where all the wicked are outside the New Jerusalem. The righteous are inside the New Jerusalem, and the Bible refers to this great white throne, and there is this judgment that takes place. So, yeah, they will be judged uh, for what they have done. Uh, Of course, their destruction in Sodom and Gomorrah, um, they were judged because of the evil that they were doing, but they might have also inflicted pain or suffering on others, uh, and they have not given account for that. So there is going to be a final day of judgment that occurs um, at the end of the thousand years.
3: Okay. Thank you, Pastor.
1: All right. You're welcome. Thanks, Oliver. We do have a study guide talking about this judgment, and uh, it's actually a thousand years of peace. It's talking about the 1,000-year millennium, and uh, you read about it in Revelation chapter 20. We'll be happy to send that to anyone who asks. It's part of our Amazing Facts study guide series. It's called A Thousand Years of Peace. The number is 800-835-6747. Ask for the study guide called A Thousand Years of Peace. We've got Chris in Florida. Chris, welcome to the program. Hi, Chris. You there? Going once, going twice? All right, we might come back to Chris. Let's try Fred in California. Fred, welcome to the program. Fred in California, you there?
4: Uh, Yes, I'm here. Good evening.
1: Okay, good. Yes, we can hear you. Good evening. Good
4: evening, Pastor Ras. There is a question in one of my uh, my Bible study group, and somebody asked him also a question. There are two uh, people. The other one is uh, you know had accepted Christ. And the other one has not accepted yet, but the one that has not accepted yet is more successful in his business and in everything that he does, while the one that accepted Jesus Christ can barely get anything for for his family. So, how do I answer that, and what would be the the best uh, Bible verse that I can probably use?
1: Okay, good question. Why does it seem that uh, the wicked sometimes prosper and the righteous seem to suffer? Uh, one might answer, well, is God been fair? Well, of course, the the reason why somebody chooses to follow God isn't just for temporary blessings. What God promises us is eternal life. That is the greatest blessing that anyone can have. In addition to the promise of eternal life for those who believe in Christ, Jesus promises to give us a peace that passes all understanding. He promises to be with us and give us strength and guidance. He doesn't promise us that we will always be richly blessed in this life because we live in a world that's filled with sin. He doesn't promise that we won't suffer persecution or tribulation. Actually, Jesus says that those who follow him, especially in the last days, will face persecution and trials and difficulties. Why does it seem that the wicked sometimes prosper? Well, the Bible says God makes his reign reign to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous sometimes even though someone might uh, be unrighteous they might have good common sense and they might have um, talents or abilities to uh, be productive in business or whatever their work might be you know God does promise to provide for our needs so a believer can trust that God will provide for him Jesus says your bread and your water will be sure. But that doesn't guarantee that we're going to be richly blessed in material things here on this earth. But that should not be our motivation for serving God. We serve God because He loves us and because He is righteous and because He died to save us and we have hope of eternal life. That's the true motivation for the Christian. Does that make sense, Fred?
4: It makes a lot of sense. In other words, what what we are trying to really say is that the the measure of God's uh, blessings it's not only in just one area or it's just right in the financial, but it's more of a lot of areas in our life that we can get blessing from God.
1: Absolutely. You know, Jesus said, What is a prophet of man that he gain the whole world and, and his lose own his own soul. soul? Thank you so much. All right. You're welcome. Thank you, Fred, for, for your call. You know, we do have a study guide that talks about finance and the Christian. It's called In God We Trust. I mentioned this study guide a little earlier. And it does talk about how that God promises to provide for our needs. And if we'll be happy to send this to anyone looking for those Bible verses, just call and ask for the study guide. It's called In God We Trust. The number to call is 800-835-6747. And ask for the study guide, In God We Trust. we got uh, Denny listening in Minnesota. Denny, welcome to the program. Oh, Pastor Ross, so nice to talk to you again. Hey, thanks for calling. Yes. My wife
2: kind of stumped me with a Bible question today, and I didn't have a great answer for it. I needed your assistance of your expertise.
1: All right, we'll try.
2: Yeah, John five
1: seventeen. Could you read that and explain that to her for me? Sure, we'll take a look at it. John five seventeen. It says, But Jesus answered them and said, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath... But he said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Now, of course, Jesus didn't break the Sabbath. He was faithful to the fourth commandment. But the Jews who had added all of these man-made traditions for the Sabbath, Christ didn't follow their traditions. So in their minds, he was breaking the Sabbath. But uh, you're wondering about verse 17. My father has been working until now, and I also have been working?
2: Yes. Uh, what What does that exactly mean that they were working?
1: Okay, remember the point of controversy that was taking place if you just look back a little bit. Jesus had healed someone on the Sabbath. He had said, take up your bed and walk. And they accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath because he healed someone. And Jesus says, well, my father works. There are certain things that have to take place on the Sabbath. Uh, God sends the rain on the Sabbath. Uh, The crops still grow on the Sabbath. Uh, You know, the animals still have to produce milk the cows or whatever it might be so god is still providing for the needs of his people on the sabbath and one of the greatest needs that god provides is salvation that's what he wants to do he wants to provide salvation for people and he provides healing when somebody is sick god doesn't rest on the sabbath to heal them but god continues to work through his spirit so yes jesus is just simply saying that my father is working on the sabbath to do good and that's why jesus said it is good to do good on the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath yeah.
2: Thank you, Pastor Ross. That really
3: helped.
1: All right. Okay. Well, thank you, Danny. We appreciate your call. Uh, let's see. We've got uh, Kathy listening in New York. Kathy, welcome to the program.
3: Yes. Good evening. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you for calling.
3: Good. My question is in regards to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, where it says to be Absence from the body is presence with the Lord. What does that exactly mean?
1: Okay, so here we have Paul writing to the believers in in Corinth, and he says he's talking about death, and he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, when a person dies, their very next conscious thought is the resurrection and the second coming of Christ. Uh, the Bible says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So when a person is resurrected at the second coming they are raised with glorified bodies, uh, with the same body that Jesus had after he rose from the dead, where uh, he appeared to the disciples and he just kind of appeared before them. He didn't have to go through the door. He just appeared in the room with them. So this glorified body is what we have in the resurrection. Paul says to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord, meaning the resurrection has taken place and I am present with the Lord. I have this new body that God has given me what we need to recognize is that the bible speaks of death as being as a sleep and when a person is asleep they are unaware of time they don't know what's going on around them the very next thing they know is they are awakened the alarm goes off in the morning it's time to get up so likewise a person who dies their very next conscious thought is if they if they save their next conscious thought is the presence of the lord jesus is coming in the clouds he calls forth these sleeping saints They are resurrected with these immortal bodies forever to be with the Lord.
3: Now, where does the soul go
1: after you die? All right. Well, the Bible speaks of the soul as being the being, the living person. You've got the breath. For example, in Genesis, when God made Adam, it says he formed him out of the dust of the earth. God breathed into him the breath of life or the spirit and man became a living soul. So a living soul refers to a living being. So we are all living souls. We're living beings. When a person dies, um, the soul doesn't go anywhere. The soul just simply ceases to exist until the resurrection. And then God, once again, breathes the breath of life into the body. Now a glorified body and we become living beings.
3: So I guess my question should, should have been, where does the breath go?
1: Yes. The breath is also referred to in the Bible as the spirit, and that is the essence of life. Every living being uh, shares the breath of life that God has given us. Only God can create life. Uh, we can perpetuate life, but God creates life. And so that that power of life, to be a living being, whether you're saved or lost, or whether even if you're an animal, you're alive, that that spark of life, that breath of life comes from God. And when a person dies, that spirit, that breath of life returns to God who gave it. But it doesn't mean that your emotions or your mind or your ability to think goes along with that. It's just that, that spark of life that all living things share. God creates us. God gives us life.
3: Okay. Thank you. That clarifies it. I appreciate it.
1: All right. Well, thank you for calling, Kathy. You know, I think you'd really enjoy the study guide that we have. It's one of the amazing facts study guides. It's called, Are the Dead Really Dead? And it talks about what does the Bible say happens to a person when they die? Can they come back? Can a person uh, haunt someone else if they are dead? What does the Bible teach on that? What does the Bible say about ghosts? Well, we'll be happy to tell you. Take a look at that study guide. Call 800-835-6747. And you can just ask for that study guide. It's called Are the Dead Really Dead? And I think you'll be encouraged. We also have a website I want to tell you about. It's called deathtruth.com. Just deathtruth.com. Go to that website, .com, .org. I think it's the same. And you'll be able to read the study guide right there on the website. You'll be able to watch some videos talking about the subject of what happens when a person dies you'll be able to um, get some wonderful Bible verses and Bible studies on that. So, yes, please uh, take a look at that website. It's called deathtruth.com. And again, friends, we want to thank you for joining us tonight. I know there are some still waiting, and I'm sorry we didn't get to your calls tonight, but hopefully you'll give us another chance next week. We're going to be here. Uh, We believe it will be a live program, and we are looking forward to taking your Bible questions. So for those of you that we weren't able to get to your question tonight, please call us again next week. Until then, I want to encourage you to take a look at our website, at amazingfacts.org or .com. It's filled with great resources, and if you've been blessed by this program, we do appreciate your support to keep us on the air. You can just donate right there at the website amazingfacts.org. Till next week, God bless. This broadcast is a previously recorded
0: episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, Please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live, honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions.
6: Written by the hand of God and spoken with His voice. Some words will never fade.
0: Get Pastor Doug Batchelor's 12-part sermon series on the Ten Commandments by calling 800-538-7275
6: or visit afbookstore.com. Hello friends, would you like to hear an amazing fact Hello, friends. How about an amazing fact?
4: Hello, this is Joe Cruz on the Amazing Facts Broadcast
6: Facts which affect you. Ever since 1965, with the first Amazing Facts radio broadcast, Amazing Facts has been using interesting facts from science, history, and nature to help share the gospel. Makes the Bible more approachable and easier to understand. We've compiled many of the most popular, unusual facts in this exciting new collection. Whether you're preparing a sermon or you want illustrations for a children's story or you just enjoy learning new trivia, this three-volume collection of the best amazing facts will be a wonderful resource in your home. Captivate and entertain your friends and family with these amazing facts books and you'll lead them to God's truth. Get your copy today.
0: For life-changing Christian resources, visit afbookstore.com. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California.